everyone, and I'll be your host for this episode today. Oh fuck, I forgot the whole start of the video. <laughs> oh, this has been an unbelievable start. Right, let's do this again. <laughs> From Swoop, it's Take the Plunge, a podcast about how business owners decided to stop what they're doing and took the plunge to start their own businesses. We take a look at how they came to that decision and what those first crucial steps were in getting their businesses up and running. My name's Kieran, and I'll be your host for this episode. And today I'm delighted to be joined by Shah Wasmond, a London-born entrepreneur, author, motivational speaker, and renowned for her work in the digital industry. Shah started her career in the music industry, worked as a talent scout for Island Records. She then went on to work for other major labels, such as Sony and Warner Music. I don't know where you got that from. That's not true. Who came Tabitha. Tabitha. (laughs) I've never worked in the music industry. I work... That's mad. Oh my God, where did that come from? No, there won't be, because all the rest of it was accurate until you got into the music industry. So I actually started off being the, uh, working with Chris Eubank. I was doing an economics degree at LSE. I became the world's first and only licensed female boxing manager. Uh, when Chris retired, I then met by chance Sir James Dyson, started working with Dyson from around a kitchen table and helped build a billion dollar brand from the ground up. Um, started then, then, then because I couldn't get any equity in the company, even though I was paid a fortune, um, I set up my first online business, sold it to B Sky B. James Dyson wrote the forward to my first book, Stop Talking, Start Doing. We sold over 250,000 copies. But I've, yeah. I've done a lot of I've done a lot of shit, but I've just never worked in the music industry. <laughs> um, I have all the stuff from your website, so that I have on the questions. But um, I, I look. Let me just. Do you want to do, do? Do you guys want to do that at the end, or do you need me on camera when you're doing that? Lead uh, I don't 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 need a camera at all, so I can do that at the end. So yeah. let's just kick, kick off into in, in, into that, and I'll send you the introduction. But the the rest of the introduction does have the bits around the, the other parts of the equation. I was yeah. just thinking, I'm, I'm thinking, oh, do that, and then you went on to it, and she's working other. I'm like, oh no, 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 I can't pretend. Yeah. That. Can't. yeah. Um. Cool. Let's. Let's just pretend that never happened. We will record a beautiful, beautiful recorded. <laughs> but welcome to the pod, chat. Uh, thank you very much for joining us. How are you doing today? I'm doing really well. Glad to be here. <laughs> Great. Um, as we can hear from that very long introduction, uh, you've had a huge career thus far. Um, the idea behind our pod is about entrepreneurship and starting to find your feet in terms of wanting to do something yourself. Um, you obviously had a lot of experience in terms of a lot of big entrepreneurs in your early days, such as James Dyson. When did you start to feel, I want to kind of start to do this myself? Uh, Honestly, I think it was from the very beginning. So um, my first kind of entrepreneurial endeavor was whilst I was still at uni, I was at LSE doing an economics degree. And I think most of my peer group wanted to go and work in the city or in banking or in finance or, or something in that kind of space. And I just wasn't really attracted to that world. I kind of always felt like I was more creative. And a a chance encounter with Chris Eubank Sr., who was the super middleweight champion of the world at the time, just led me down this whole entirely different path. And I think that was probably my first 
entrepreneurial kind of break. I am. Um, mm -hmm. I went on to become the UK's, well, actually, I went on to become the world's first and only licensed female boxing manager. So I was running my own company from from probably about 21. And um, I, I just think that it's, they, there's, there's this age old question, are entrepreneurs born or are they made? And I think it can be either. I think in my case, I think I, I was, I think I'm unemployable, really, right? <laughs> right i think i'm too opinionated I, think <laughs> I don't think i'd last very long and the only reason you, you gave um sir james dyson as an example he was my first ever client in my pr agency gotcha. and and so i wasn't employed by dyson he was my client but he probably took up 90 percent of my personal time so i might as well mm. have been employed by him but yeah. you know, that's a different beast you're talking about, right? 100%. Working with, with James Dyson uh, and now Sir James Dyson was, was basically better than doing an MBA at Harvard. You couldn't have paid to have had that experience. Yeah. But yeah, I, I just, all jokes aside, I genuinely think that some entrepreneurs, and I'd put myself in that category, are unemployable because we think about things differently. So the only companies who could really cope with us would be super forward thinking companies who actually wanted somebody to come in to be disruptive, to find different ways of doing things, to bring new ideas to the table, as opposed to just doing the job in hand. And I think that's quite yep. for an entrepreneur to just do the job in hand. Yeah. Well, obviously, you came to that realization very early. So you're in a, you're, you're finishing up LSE. And how do you decide? Well, you've obviously met your met. Chris Eubank. So how do you decide from meeting him that, yes, I want to be a female licensed boxing manager? How does that happen? I know it's, it sounds batshit crazy when you actually talk about it. So I, it's I, not, I, not a natural path for an LSE undergrad, let's be honest. No, not really. Um, I've won a competition to write for Cosmopolitan magazine whilst I was at LSE. And I think that probably demonstrates like I've always been a creative at heart so so mm -hmm. that that's really been my my core channel for entrepreneurship is through cr creativity and i interviewed him and uh i interviewed him for cosmopolitan and on the spot he offered me a job and i had no idea what the job was and i just said yes and then at the time i lived in this little tiny studio flat in finsbury park and when i got home he he had already left me a message on on my answer machine back in the days when we had answering machines, and I was I was basically told I had to be at Gatwick Airport at eight thirty the next morning and pack a bag for two days. And I literally had no idea what I was doing. My boyfriend at the time was listening to this message. Going, I'd say he, was over, he was over the moon. He's like, "What the actual? Like, what is this?" And so <laughs> the next morning, I, I got on a plane with him and Barry Hearn, who was the promoter oh, yeah. match room. And just basically, I was told, right, you're putting on the biggest fight the UK's ever seen, Ben Eubank 2, Old Trafford, 48,000 people live, like biggest ever live boxing event in the UK, and just deal with it. And that was it. I was just, you know, naivety is a great thing, right? So the beauty of, of being young is you don't know what you don't know. So I didn't have any time to be like worried or scared. I just thought, okay, right, that's my job. That's what I'm going to go do. So I, I genuinely feel very fortunate a because in my career i've had so many people give me so many breaks but also because that kind of experience you, you can't pay for that right you can't mm. you can't go to uni to get that experience and and so 
I'd love to see this kind of quantum leap then. So you're, you're, you're 21, you're a licensed boxing manager, and then you then 24 and you're around uh, Sir James Dyson's kitchen table working on his brand from your PR company. How does one go from a licensed boxing manager to running a PR business? I think like most entrepreneurs' lives, it is through, some people would call it luck. And I just think luck is where opportunity meets timing and the person the person who's at that intersection grabs that with both hands. And so what happened was uh, Dyson had just won their lawsuit against Amway, which is a, a US company who had basically infringed Dyson's patents. And nobody would back Dyson. So for those who don't know the background to the Dyson story, nobody would back him. He got no funding from anyone. Everyone told him it would never work. And uh, he got no funding from any of the other manufacturers that he went to uh, from the VC funds, from the private equity funds, from the banks, literally nobody would fund him. And he, he, the only way he, he really got the funding to really push the company at the beginning was through taking Amway to court for patent infringement. And he'd literally just won this case. And he was starting to think about how does he start to build his brand? So he hired a copywriter because they had, uh, they had, no budgets to do like proper above the line marketing. They had no budgets for TV. They couldn't compete with Hoover or Electrolux like that. So he hired a copywriter and this copywriter happened to be my friend's dad. <laughs> and James said to the copywriter, do you know anyone who's good at PR? We need someone who thinks differently. We need to, I don't want one of the big agencies. I don't want somebody who comes in and sees this as a domestic appliance to put into good housekeeping. That's not what I want. And so Ken, my, my friend's dad said, and when you think about it, it's actually crazy even saying it because now there's no way somebody would say to Sir James Dyson, oh, I know, go and speak to, you know, my, my daughter's friend who's, uh, you know, 23 or maybe at the time, 24 maybe, but I think I was probably 23. Um, yeah, she's the, the answer. But back then, Ken just said, oh, James, I think you should meet, you know, Lucy's friend, Shah, because she's, uh, she's, you know, she's really smart. She's gone to LSE, but then she's been working with Chris Eubank. She thinks different. I think you guys would just get on. And the long story short is he called me in for a meeting and the meeting went on for five hours. And at the end right. of five hours, he just said, can you start tomorrow? And that was it. Right. And I, well, I suppose from, from, from that, uh, I'd imagine the, obviously it was a bit of a snowball because Dyson is no longer the, the, the the up and coming challenger that it was back then. So I'd imagine because of that, the, the work would have started to increase and yeah. the opportunities would start to increase. So from that, did you have to, to, to start to think about the PR business itself in terms of being able to, to scale it and, and, and manage that kind of more larger workload? Yeah, and, and to be honest, it was a, the, the challenge was quite a unique one because the challenge with James was that he only wanted me working with him. He didn't want anyone else in the agency working with him. And I, I respected that and I understood it because we had that relationship. So I was trying to scale my PR agency whilst having zero time to be involved in the company, which is a mm. really difficult challenge. Yeah, so I couldn't, I literally couldn't be present for any other clients other than James. But I was constantly weighing up thinking, well, there's no way like I, I, I was astute enough. And I mean, street smart rather than academically smart. I was street smart enough to understand this is a once in a lifetime opportunity. You don't say you you don't turn this opportunity down to go and work for Marks and Spencers and do their PR campaign. You, th I'm not doing that, right? 
So, so I took the decision that actually I would keep my PR agency small. We probably had 20, a roster of about 20 clients and I had account managers dealing with the rest, but my focus was on fully showing up and really working with James. And, and, and one thing that I think has stood me in good stead through, through my career is my ability to, and, and maybe the priority that I place on relationships. So if you fast forward, you know, 20 years later, when I wrote my first book, James wrote the forward to my first book. And that's because of the relationship that, that we built all those years ago. And I just think it's so important for entrepreneurs to, to remember that if you're an entrepreneur at the beginning of your career, I can guarantee you're going to be an entrepreneur at the end of your career. And hopefully your career will be long. And during that period of time, things get easier because your relationships get deeper. And I believe that relationships are your fundamentally your greatest asset. So mm. I, I think for me, the relationship with James was incredibly significant. Mm. And, and then how do you counter balance deepening relationships on the kind of important client side with, say, the, the 20 account managers that you're bringing in, hiring in into the agency? Um, with great difficulty, like <laughs> with great difficulty. So, so my relationship was specifically with James and his immediate circle and his family, actually. I was really close to his entire family. And I think that maybe this is a unique situation because in this situation, it was pretty obvious when I looked at my other clients and I looked at Dyson, even though I would say 90% of my other clients were bigger in terms of turnover at that point in time, Dyson was magic and it was obvious he was magic from day one to me. And so mm. you were given the opportunity to do bread and butter stuff or do magic, always go do magic, take the risk, do the magic, you know? Yeah. And if the other clients fall by the wayside, which over a period of time, the reality was we, we, we lost clients because I didn't have the headspace to focus on them. Yeah, I don't regret any of that because if it came to a decision between spending less time on Dyson and more time on the other clients, I was never going to do that. And how long a period did you work uh, on? Five years. With, with yeah, five years. I was on five years. Yeah, and I only left because no matter how much I loved him, and no matter how much I believed in the brand, and no matter how well paid I was, all of the above were true. I didn't have any equity. I didn't have any skin in the game. And I was just itching to to do something that I could make mine. Mm. So having kind of come to that realization of, of needing more skin in the game, what, what were you thinking there and what, what did you what did you turn to? So it was uh I think I feel like I've I've been really fortunate in my career on many, many levels. And one of them was being at the right age, at the right point in history when we had the very first dot-com boom and money was a plenty everybody was investing in startups i had a great pedigree i had great connections but i thought i'm not 100 percent sure what i want to do yet so i got in as one of the early directors of one of the very first travel companies deckchair.com with sir bob geldof um, I was there for 18 months um, whilst I was kind of thinking, right, what's my thing? What's my idea? And then we came up with a concept which became, I think, definitely one of the early social networks. It was called My Kind of Place and it was a social network for teenage girls. It was taking concepts of the old school magazines, putting them online, 
big sponsors, Johnson and Johnson, Procter and Gamble, you know, all that those um, mm-hmm. had investment from B Sky B and, you know, it was, it was a good time to be an entrepreneur. It was, yeah. fact, I would say it was a great time to be an entrepreneur. Uh, okay, talk me through, I mean, many entrepreneurs who listen to this and talking through uh, investment cycles and, and the pain of, of raising funding. Sounds like this wasn't too painful, but talk me through pitching to B Sky B. Uh, what did you go in with? How did you prep? What did you ask for? Yeah, and I think we should talk about this in the context of funding because this is an isolated situation where you are on that hockey stick curve where, if I'm being honest, they would throw money at anyone and everyone any idea on the back of a napkin you could raise money for. So I don't want to pretend that I got money because I had the best idea in the world or I was the mm. smallest, you know, entrepreneur around the table. We had a great idea and we were savvy. We were savvy as a team, as, but money was a plenty. So for me, the the most important thing was I wanted more than money from B Sky B. We wanted we wanted to be able to sponsor some of their big channels. So we became the main sponsor for. Buffy the Vampire Slayer. So we looked at what were, how do you grow your audience? If you're raising mm-hmm. money, I think it's so important to try wherever possible to raise money from people, places, institutions that can give you more than just the money. Can they yeah. give you access to an audience? Can they give you access to market information? Can they give you access to distribution? What can they do for you above just, you know, every dollar is not equal. Right. And and B Sky B's dollar was worth more than somebody else's dollar if we could negotiate. So for me, it was about going into the the meetings, really understanding the market and understanding what they were going to get out of it, as well as what we wanted out of it. And I've always been a big believer that no matter who you're in a meeting with, you if you're in that meeting, there's a reason you're in the meeting. The person opposite you is interested. Otherwise, they wouldn't have the meeting. So mm-hmm. never go into meetings thinking that they're doing you a favor. Never go yep. into meetings thinking that there is a disparity in power. I've always gone into meetings thinking we're equal. You need me and I need you. And actually, collectively, you know, the, the sum is greater than our parts. And I think if you have that attitude and you can demonstrate that in your presentation with real research and statistics, so you show that you're not, it's not just bravado, Mm-hmm. And times you'll get what you want. And and in terms of the my kind of place, uh, how what what happened to us? Um, talk so me through, like, uh, uh, yeah. So when, at the end, at the end, when all the dot com bubble kind of burst, and and the whole market collapsed, so it went from one extreme to the other. Um, but we still had a massive database, so so that that was the first exit. The first exit I've had was to be Sky B. So how long was my kind of place in circulation? Half. Three and a half years. Three and a half years. And then they kept it going, I don't know, maybe for another couple of years afterwards. Yeah. Okay. Um, so you've, you've exited uh, my kind of place. Uh, did you take a pause? Probably not, I imagine. Uh, what, did you, what did you do next? Well, I kind of took a pause and because, you know, just, just a tiny bit of my backstory, I grew up single parent family on a council estate, never had any money in my life. I'm the first one to ever go to university, had no role models around me, had no idea about money, no idea about raising capital, no idea about running a business, nothing. So, and that's really important for the things that I've done later on in my career, because I, I'm all about democratizing access to funding, democratizing access to information and uh, but but 
you know, what I did was I thought this was the first time in my life I'd ever had any significant money. And I'm like, mm-hmm. fuck, I'm just going to go and have some fun. And I'm Great. Gonna- well, let's talk about that. What's the deal? Come on. <laughs> I I think maybe I took a little bit of like the, the 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 boxing too far, and I kind of was in Vegas. And I've never smoked, drank, or done drugs my whole life, but I can do pretty much everything else. So, it, which is quite interesting because I've never drunk alcohol ever. But I was out partying like five times <laughs> a week, traveling all over the world, taking my mom on holiday, taking all my friends on holiday, like living like Floyd Mayweather. And, um, <laughs> and I don't regret any of it, right? I did. I was. I was smart enough to invest in property as well yeah which has really served me well in the long run right yeah and then you get bored because i'm telling you if you're not yeah you're like you can't do that for too long before before that ticking in your brain yeah so how how long did the floyd mayweather train last before the the tiktok started to kick in well, interestingly, the first thing that kicked in was I, uh, a journalist at The Guardian recommended this up and coming boxer and said, oh, you know, I know you're not like doing anything right now, but go check anyway. So then I took on another and I started managing fighters again and I love boxing. So I kind of had like this hobby, like as a boxing manager in my sideline. And then I started investing a bit more in property. And I would say probably it took me, I think, five years before I had my next big idea. So gotcha. that doesn't mean I had five years being Floyd Mayweather. I probably had <laughs> yeah. months being Floyd. Okay. I went well, that's... And I was okay. a property portfolio. I was managing boxes. And then I thought, I'm just going to wait for the thing that I really, really am passionate about to come to me. Right. Well, indulge me one second. The 18 months, what was the highlight of the Floyd Mayweather lifestyle? Um... <laughs> Oh God, I think probably the highlight was hiring a big, huge fuck off villa <laughs> out in Florida and having all my friends and family over for, nice. I, think, I think everybody's over about three weeks. And, but during that whole period of time, I, I think I spent 12 of the 18 months on holiday somewhere. Ah, <laughs> oh, glorious, glorious. Well, it sounds like you absolutely earned it. So glad to hear you You took some time to enjoy it. Okay, let's fast forward then again. Big idea. It's come in. What is it? Tell me. It was, uh, the idea was called Smarter, uh, S-M-A-R-T-A. And it was, it really was to democratize access to knowledge, information, training, skills for entrepreneurs. Um mm-hmm. What I'd realized in my journey was that when I sat around the table with the privately educated white men who had grown up with money and role models, how much easier they had it. They grew up looking at spreadsheets. They understood all of this. Their ideas weren't weren't a touch on my ideas, but they could speak in a way that I didn't have the language at that point in time. I didn't have the vocabulary to be able to, to, to have the conversations that they couldn't, it really frustrated me. It pissed me right off because I thought Imagine. this is not this is not fair. These people are taking them more seriously than me because they have access to a vocabulary in a language that I don't. Right now, I'm quite feisty, so you, I would never tell. Never tell. 
I would never be afraid to address the elephant in the room. I, I've sat in funding meetings and I've asked them if this doc, if this pitch came into you and the, the name on it was David Wright and that was a guy whose father went to Oxford with your dad, would you be having the same response? Because I'm really interested to understand. You know, and I think these are really important conversations to have. But smarter was, I knew that the way that business support was being delivered in the UK was totally flawed. And to be honest, it still is. Back then it was, you'd go to your bank and you'd walk into NatWest or RBS and you'd see a, 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 a business bank manager who's never run a business in their lives before. And they're mm. supposed to give you advice on what to do with your business. How batshit crazy is that? Mm -hmm. Whereas... If you looked at the successful entrepreneurs who went to all the best private schools and they would go and speak to their dad, their mum, their sister, their aunt, their uncle, their, their next door neighbour, who were all running successful businesses and have real genuine business advice and experience. Mm -hmm. so I wanted to be able to democratise that and build a platform that allowed yeah. anyone who wanted to set up a business access to the same kind of advice, support, experience, expertise. And... Um, I picked my timing really, I don't know whether you want to say well or or horrifically badly because we, we, we launched in... A... So I'm thinking it was like probably 2008, 2009 now, judging by the timeline. Yeah. yeah, exactly that, right? And you know what happened then, right? So this is when all the banks were collapsing. However, I had this one of my greatest achievements. I had managed to get £1 million of sponsorship, not investment, Oh, we love that non-dilutive. Give us that non-dilutive all day long. Right. One million pounds of sponsorship from RBS and NatWest for the platform before it was even built. And I think that is, I'm going to pat myself on my own back. I think that is a bloody big <laughs> accomplishment. I had no data. I had no proof. I had, I had nothing other than an idea. But man, I was so passionate about that idea. I, I could persuade Eskimos to buy ice, right? Yeah, yeah. Okay, so you've, you've got the million quid off uh, RBS now West. What, what did you use it to implement? So we were very fortunate that despite the fact that they hadn't actually signed the contract, they signed a, they'd signed a heads of agreement, so they'd signed, yeah. but, but they hadn't signed the, so officially, legally, they could have backed out of it given the fact that all the banks were collapsing, including them, they were being taken over by the government, right? Mm -hmm. However, the the CEO at the time came from a very similar background to me and had worked his way up and was absolutely passionate about supporting small businesses. Amazing. Amazing. And he said, he called me, he said, uh, Shah, tomorrow morning, you're going to read in all the papers that, that we're being taken over by the government. And I'm calling you person. I mean, imagine this. I'm just some like, you know, some young star with an idea. He's a CEO of, of, of RBS who's got more than enough problems on his plate. He calls me to say, I want you to know you have my personal word. I am pulling this over the line for you. We are doing this. We are not backing out of this. And he said, actually, now more than ever, we need to do this. And, um, you know, that, again, really solidified the importance of relationships for me. Um, so we got the million pounds, we cut our cloth accordingly because we probably lost at least another million in funding that, that we should have had. And, you know, when we were going out for five million, I think we ended up with the sponsorship as well with maybe two, two and a half. 
we built out what became the biggest platform in the UK for small businesses. Um, we were we had about five hundred thousand hits a month, individual hits a month from from small businesses in the UK using it. We launched the Smarter One Hundred Awards, which became the biggest small business awards in the UK, um, and you know it it went on to become the the biggest platform that small businesses from all different backgrounds use it wasn't um it wasn't specific to any industry so it was very much agnostic and then again when the markets got choppy we had to part of the reason we wanted we had to cut our cloth was because my original idea and this is where you you, you know entrepreneurs kick yourself with hindsight i wanted to create a content and community platform and we were ahead mm -hmm. of our time and we were told we had to go and create business software tools and, and and they were so rudimentary back then but we did and we got big contracts with all the banks and you know eventually uh lloyd's bought uh, even though we we got the sponsorship from rbs and NatWest, uh lloyd's then took over and eventually took over the company um and you know for, for me that's probably my biggest regret because i remember my last board meeting where i was told by a board of all men that my concept for creating online courses and online learning for entrepreneurs and small business owners was egotistical and um, I just wanted to be famous. So I was just like, do you know what guys, fuck you. I'm gonna take my equity, you take the business. And I will be fair, the chairman, three years later, the chairman sent me a message on Twitter saying, Shah, I just need to tell you that you, you you were right. That's what we should have done. Yeah, I mean, like, also, like, it, it sounds like kind of you had something that was in the wrong home because you probably had, like, a groundswell of, at that time, I'd imagine, like, Vice Media and all that kind of really exactly. hard-hitting content. And then yeah. you've obviously got the surge in social media and, and deciphering that, that through. But then you look further afield to today, what, what, in terms of where your genesis, your concept is, you look at something like Udemy, where you've got this rich daily of online courses, which is incredibly profitable, not just for Udemy, but for all those individuals building their courses within it. And Masterclass, there are so many, yeah. it's the way that we all learn now. And, and it wasn't- But I would, I would say that was impossible to create within a banking structure. Yeah, and that was the problem. So the problem was, that they didn't understand it. And the problem also was that the CEO who, who who signed off in the first place, he then moved on, he moved on to Santander. And so you then had people who were just old school banking and didn't have the mm. creativity and didn't have the ideas. And, and But now you look at it and, and you know, we were just we were just ahead of our time, right? And, and that is yeah. the case for a lot of entrepreneurs, let's be honest, right? A lot of it is about timing. It's not just, did you have a good idea? Did you have yeah. a good idea at the right time? And were you able to get that funded? Yeah, I think that funding piece is crucial because you could have the idea at the right time, but if you're not in the right environment for it, say the funding to see, see it through, or in your case, I'm not in a media house or an environment that is conducive for, for, for this kind of thinking or creation. Yeah. It's, so, it's so my idea, it's, it's interesting you said it because my idea back then was like, guys, can we just go and try to, to sell to Time Warner? I said, let's just go try to sell to Time Warner. I said, if, if we sell to Time Warner, they're going to get it. They're going to understand it. Let's go sell to AOL. Let's, they'll get it. Let's go, you know, 
let's go sell to a media house. And they're like, we're not a media house. We're a bank. And I'm like, oh, okay, you've lost the plot. You don't get it. This is not what it's yeah. about. You know, yeah. what, what small businesses need is that they, they need that they need to be able to upskill. And yes, they need to be able to manage everything, but they need yeah. information. And, but the content can come from a compliance first approach of like the content has to be raw, it has to be out there, it has to be reactionary. So if you're starting from like, can we, can we not say this? It's never going to have no. the, the message that that entrepreneur needs. Um, okay. So I have that scenario with Lloyd's. Okay. Where, where we're at now, what, 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 what are we doing? So we then pass it over to Lloyd's and I thought to myself, right, what am I going to do next? So I took about a year out. I, I did a bit of consultancy work. Um, <clears throat> and at the time, I, I was also, it was, it was quite interesting because I was also running uh, in, in the 2008 kind of period, I was running a tech fund with a guy called Dan Wagner. So I saw this on your website. Sorry, not just a tech fund, you had a $100 million tech yeah. fund. Let's yeah. talk, to me, talk to me about that for a second. So we represented uh, Dan Wagner and I. So Dan's a pretty well-known uh, tech mm -hmm. entrepreneur. Um, he's uh, currently the, the, the founder and, and CEO of a company called Resolve, which is um, a fintech company. Um, and he's doing fantastically well. So, so Dan and I met, we hit it off straight away. We both really believed in the startup um, kind of ecosystem, but felt like there wasn't enough funding for creative ideas and that the funding was very specifically allocated and it was missing a big gap. Um, mm -hmm. We between us had some really great connections and we went and had some conversations with some ultra high net worth. So by ultra high net worth, their, their family offices would represent the size of funds that maybe a small VC would. So mm -hmm. we had uh, one family office in particular who was really keen to um, explore a more creative market, but with a tech focus, but looking both yeah. B3 and B2C. And uh, Dan and I ran Bright Station Ventures LLP, which took um, on board the responsibility for that 100 million and, and the investment thereafter. No, yeah, but so come on, talk. <laughs> Can't stop there. Oh yeah, we just raised a hundred million for this gigantic family office. Right, don't, no full stop. Right, come on. What you, you have to deploy the thing. Talk me through so, that. So we start. So we probably um, we probably spent six months really getting our head around what do we actually want to invest in? What do the benchmarks look? So what are the criteria so we can start having a really you know decent. Um, filtering process and then we started investing because we both believed then and actually we both still believe now in the power of community social you, you know the i i think they're the areas that are, that are actually underfunded still so there's a little bit of a divergence saying that so we started investing in blog groups so we started looking at who were the big bloggers and how could we pull together like 10, 20 bloggers into now an overarching new media company. And we were super, super successful in doing that until what happened at the same time as the smarter thing, because it was the 2008, 2009 crisis, the, the family office who put the money behind us was the same family who owned Kensington Mortgages. And Kensington Mortgages were the biggest subprime mortgage lender in the world. Right. 
So basically we were in the eye of the storm and everything imploded on us. And actually what happened was uh, government stepped in and froze all the funds. Now to be fair, nothing, they, the family office had done nothing untoward with the funds. Um, yeah. But because of the nature of all the banking collapsing, any company that was involved in any of the subprime markets, that everything was frozen. Gotcha. So, you know, it's a roller coaster, right? Being an entrepreneur. Yeah, absolutely. You basically go, I'll just take that giant weather class back. Thank you very much. And we're like, okay, what do we do now then? Like, what, yeah. what do we do now? You, you, and you have to, um, it's like an old boxing saying, it's not how you get knocked down the counts, it's how you get back up. So we were like, yeah. what are we going to do? We're going to go again. And, um, and that was at the same time that, that, that I had the, the idea for Smarter as well. So we were kind of working on the two things simultaneously. And then after Smarter was kind of a portion off to, to Lloyd's, I took about a year out to think, am I right in what I think about online learning? Am I right that this is, or, or is the board right? And I, am I just, is this just an ego trip? And I, I spent a, quite a while going to the States, attending a lot of seminars, signing up to all the early courses, signing up to Udemy almost at the very beginning, and really trying to understand where the market was. And then I thought, you know what? And, and I also had my first book out, and the first book did, fan, you know, it was number one in WH Smith for 14 months in a row. So it was like their best selling. It's not bad. Yeah, it changed my career for sure. It was their best-selling non-celebrity book of all time, their best-selling business book of all time. And and that opened up a lot of doors for me. And it made me start to realize that, do you know what? Maybe the market's not right right now to raise money. And maybe the market's not right right now to believe in how I see things. But that doesn't mean that you can't do it yourself on a smaller mm -hmm. scale. Mm -hmm. So I started building out uh, courses and the platform to teach uh online business owners how to scale their businesses and, and uh, over the last five years i mean we've done incredibly well financially and we've we've taught thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of people not at the scale that i i wanted to teach hundreds of thousands of people right but you know i, I settled on thousands and um <laughs> don't give up yeah <laughs> yeah no no never never <laughs> could be tim robbins in no time <laughs> it's yeah. Uh, so, so did you, did you feel like go from that initial publishing your first book just opened up this kind of opportunity to connect to a much wider audience that way and start to experiment in different mediums? A hundred percent, absolutely. Uh, and at the same time, you know, the the juggle for for female entrepreneurs is real. If you've got kids as well, and very sadly, we we lost my son's dad when he was only three and a half. So not only was That's I sorry. A, a, a woman in business I'm a woman in business with a young child and I'm a single mom and not just a single mom who'd been through divorce with a dad I, I was a single widow and I was having to juggle all of these things at the same time and so for me I think I spent five years making the decision to prioritize my family my child my still doing my business but maybe mm -hmm. not the scale that I, I did beforehand thinking to myself do you know what be grateful that you've got a great life. Be grateful that you've got a nice property portfolio. Be grateful that you can do this type of business from your back garden and, and you can make some really, you know, decent money. And I do believe that very much like chapters in a book, I think that business and especially being an entrepreneur, we have chapters and 
It's never going to be one single chapter through a book ever. And I think like the, yours is a very big book with many, many chapters. <laughs> well, and the interesting thing, Kieran, is I feel like I've only just started. <laughs> yeah, I actually believe that too. It's just going to be like some sort of Harry Potter trilogy if anyone wants to read the autobiography when it comes out in 2052. <laughs> I do. I feel, I feel like, you know, I've got a SaaS platform that I've been working on for the last six months and I'm really, really excited about that. I'm I'm excited about I'm very much at the forefront of the conversation about the rise of the female entrepreneur. I'm really about encouraging women to think bigger about their businesses, to to really understand how to get, raise funding, to not be afraid of going out there for funding. I think the the whole dynamics and the landscape is changing. And I think that if we look at those chapters, I feel like, you know, I had a bit of a five-year hiatus, where, which for everybody else, you know, we're, we're doing, you know, multiple seven figures a year. So it's it's a, it's a pretty decent hiatus. But for me, it it's that's a ticking over type of business. And, and, and I'm not really the mindset to do a ticking over type of business. And so now my son's 17, it's like, oh, okay. I'm kind of back to when I was 20 and like, completely fearless. freedom yeah oh, no no now we now we need the 100 million exit right not the 100 million fund we need the 100 million exit next that's what we're working on next nice i love the passion love the energy uh we we can also we see that so much in swoop when you you look at people coming from finance whether male or female and how much the male will ask for versus how much the female will ask for versus how much they'll, they'll put value as well to the businesses it, it is it is crazy seeing seeing it when you look at the uh, uh, on a broad scale of like hundreds and thousands. Um, so yeah, it's a it's a pretty important message to land because there's so much more value to to extract. Yeah, um, value to extract, and, and but I think for women, you know, in this conversation, we can accept you know less than two percent of, of of VC funding goes to women. Fact, we can look at all these facts, and we can make a decision that we're either going to just accept the facts or we're going to do something about it. And part yeah accepting to do something about it means that we have to encourage women to ask for more right mm. now the fact is that we're still going to be you know at a disadvantage but if we don't ask for it in the first place we're definitely never going to get it no and i also think there's an analogy to something you said completely earlier that's very true of the current set uh you so you talked about the frustration of bank managers back in the day and the fact that they weren't operators but they were the gatekeepers of cash if you go from look at the vski landscape today all from the gatekeepers of cash are people who've done five, six years in investment banking and then gone into it. They have never done a day's life as an operator. So all they can think about is a financial model that should go this or hockey stick slightly or have a little bit of trend analysis into it, but don't know the true ins and outs of a business where shit hits the fan, unbelievable amounts of time and whoever can handle that and, and, and keep growing through that. So I think that's a bit of a issue on the, the funding side, I, I don't know if you, you, you've come across that at all. I, I definitely think it's an issue. And I also think it's a massive naivety and a flaw on the part of the VCs and the PEs and, and everyone else, because I would love to see which company that they've ever worked with that follows that linear journey. It's bullshit. Nobody does that. No matter how successful you are, Virgin doesn't do that. Look at how many companies Virgin set up that go bankrupt. Can we like put this into perspective? What you really want when you're taking funding is you want someone who's going to literally roll their sleeves up and get in the trenches with you. Kieran, you've got a problem. Let's Massive. fix it. Exactly. 
got a problem. You better have our money back in on Friday. Yeah, but and then the irony in, in both the bank scenario and the VC scenario is they've got loads of fucking war wounds all over the place of catastrophic decisions where it, it's gone poorly as well. So you might as well want to back the people that want to get, as you say, get stuck in the trenches and are really wanting, passionate about what, what you want to get done. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm sure you've talked about this before, but and I'm sure you've watched the documentary on WeWork. But for me, oh, man, it's so good. <laughs> it's so good. As an entrepreneur watching it, the frustration for me was like, I'm thinking to myself, don't get me wrong. Some of his decisions were absolutely batshit crazy. <laughs> yeah. However, can we all acknowledge that the VCs invested in him because he was batshit crazy, because they thought to themselves, yeah. this guy's got such big ideas. Only someone with, big, with ideas that big is going to pull this off. So the yeah. very person that they invested in, they then want to turn him into an accountant? Yeah. Like, guys, like, this is what you invested in. And I yeah. felt for him because I felt like the way they handled it to me was like, you're ex the, the very person that you invested in, you now expect to be a 180 degrees different person. That's not what you invested in. If he came to you, as a straight up two plus two equals four accountant, you would never have invested in him. Yeah. So how did they let it get to that extreme, right? They have to take responsibility for it. Yeah, Bernie Matthew. Madoff, that's another Netflix. Story. I mean, how, how does Wall Street allow Bernie Madoff to happen? And, and then they want to give hardworking entrepreneurs grief when they don't meet their quarter earnings. I mean, but you can let this shit happen. Yeah kind of yeah you know yeah it's bananas uh there's yeah i suppose a silly amount of examples but i suppose uh keen to to to, to circle back to one of the many future chapters but let's let's what what is what is the kind of next chapter for sha uh coming up right now so the next chapter for me is i've been working in the coaching industry um for about the last five years um, from from a business mentoring side, but also through mentoring coaches on how to scale their businesses. And it's interesting, if you look at the red ocean, blue ocean theory and strategy, what I've seen where the opportunity is, is there is a massive opportunity in the coaching space, which is one of the fastest growing markets in the entire world, right? It's one of the fastest growing industries in the entire world. And when you look at the corporate world, there is a year-on-year -year exponential growth of investment into coaching for the workforce. And yet, currently, the procurement of that coaching is really splintered and sporadic. So there is no Airbnb delivery platform mm -hmm. where mm -hmm. corporates can actually procure coaching and allow their workforce to self-select. So my big mission is... I'm all about democratization. So I'm about mm -hmm. democratizing access to information. I'm about democratizing access to support. And, and really for me, the next chapter is about democratizing access to coaching. And because I believe that in my experience for myself and for every entrepreneur I've ever worked with, it's not a lack of skills. It's not a lack of desire that gets in our way. Typically, the thing that gets in our way the most is ourselves. And for me, I'm not talking about, you know, rah-rah kind of, you know, airy-fairy coaching. I'm talking about really strategic 
There's no sports team in the world that doesn't have a coach. There's no athlete in the world that doesn't have a coach. There's nobody who operates at a high performing level that doesn't have a coach. Mm -hmm. And so mm -hmm. I don't understand why we can't comprehend that if you provided coaching to the entire workforce, not just the white male C-suite corner offices, that not only would you have higher retention, not only would you have higher profitability, but you would have a far happier workforce. Such a good analogy to, 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 to frame it like that, because it's so essential in so many other aspects outside of, of, of a business aspect, because that's what you do to learn from the day one. You go to a teacher, to school, to learn, to get guidance. So why should that ever stop? Exactly. I mean, you, you know, do you think Usain Bolt got to where he is through all, all, all on his own merits? No one. You know, no man is an island unto themselves. And I feel that if we can democratize coaching, you will revolutionize productivity and happiness all at the same time. Love it. Uh, well, I think that's the lovely way to, to end it. Shah, I, I mean, we quite got to challenge you to study anywhere. I mean, there's so many webs and interwares I could have gone through the whole conversation. But thank you so much for sharing. I, I can only imagine a tiny piece of your story. And I wish you all the best on the Shat Wasman Harry Potter style trilogy with the multi chapters all to come. Thank you so much for, for coming on. Thank you so much for having me, Kieran. Cheers. Uh, that was great. Thanks so much. Um, yeah. Um, and it's so true that the analogy on, on the coaching thing, like, um, awesome. yeah.